to our podcast, Making Sense of Science, the show that features interviews with leading experts in health and science about the latest developments and the big ethical questions. I'm your host, Kira Peacock, the editor of Leaps.org, and today we're going to talk about the very challenging issue of the silencing of dissent around scientific controversies. I'm honored that my guest today is Dr. Amish Adalja, Senior Scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and an Infectious Disease Physician. Dr. Thanks for having me. So this conversation is prompted by the whole timely blow up around Joe Rogan and Spotify, but that's not what we're going to be mainly focusing on today. We're going to touch on that. We want to talk about the bigger issues that this controversy raises around speech, scientific debate, and who wields power over this debate. Um, before I give our audience just a quick rundown of where things stand, Dr. Adelja, do you want to um, start with any comment on the situation as you see it? I think that this is something that most of us at this stage in the pandemic didn't think that we would be facing. We knew there would be disinformation, conspiracy theories, and just a hyper-energized anti-vaccine movement. But the sheer amount of disinformation and how this has become a major flashpoint in the pandemic, I think, is surprising. And I think what I worry about is this carrying on to the next infectious disease battle we have to face or to the control of our chronic infectious diseases like measles or tuberculosis or or chickenpox or even influenza. And, and I think that's the part that's the most scary is that I think that there's really been a change in the way the general public is thinking about the control of infectious diseases and the value of vaccines. And I think this is something that really needs to be addressed because it is something that I think will decrease our resiliency in the future. Absolutely. So what I want to unpack today is when you say it needs to be addressed, that's really where I want to get into a nitty gritty conversation about those details. Because as we've seen play out in the last several weeks, there's a lot of intense emotion, anger and fear around this topic of how to address misinformation and disinformation around specifically right now, the COVID vaccines. Um, I think that <clears throat> Our audience should just know the quick rundown in case anyone hasn't been following it. So Joe Rogan recently had on two highly credentialed individuals, a vaccine scientist and a cardiologist, but who have um, made themselves notorious for multiple false and unsubstantiated claims around um, the COVID pandemic and the vaccines. So the things that they said ranged from claiming that the vaccines lacked a safety review to that drugs like hydroxychloroquine were effective, even though these things were these claims are absolutely unsupported by any scientific evidence. And <clears throat> in the fallout, about 270 doctors and scientists wrote an open letter to Spotify, which has the exclusive right to distribute Rogan, um, which, for which they reportedly paid $100 million to, quote, mitigate the spread of misinformation on its platform though the company presently had no misinformation policy. And then, as most people know, lots of well-known musicians and podcasters pulled out their content. Um, Spotify responded, saying it will post a disclaimer about COVID information on any content relating to it. And even the White House is weighed in by saying, quote, we want every platform to continue doing more to call out misinformation and disinformation while also uplifting accurate information. 
And Rogan has responded by promising to do more research about his guests and to aim for better balance by having people with um, more credible expertise and uh, credible science at their fingertips to discuss these issues. So here's a few buckets that I want to discuss with you, Dr. Adalja. I, the way I see it, we can have a discussion about three main themes. One is who to trust. The second is what should the gatekeepers do? And the third is how should regular people deal with their encounters with misinformation? So let's jump into who to trust. I want to start with this issue of credentials. So when someone like Robert Malone comes on the podcast and he claims to be the inventor of the mRNA vaccines, although uh, that's definitely not true. He had a hand in a piece of it, but not at all with the entire uh, piece, the entire uh, technology. How can people distinguish credentials from credibility? Let's start with that. I think it's very hard because often people use credentials as a substitute for credibility or they use that as a marker for credibility because you assume if someone has went through uh, major institutions of higher learning and has all these letters after their name that they're actually going to be a subject matter expert and know what they're talking about and, and be a source of credible information. But that that's not always the case. We've seen, for example, even Nobel Prize winners um, be kind of led astray on COVID-19 in a way that they hadn't with their uh, in the past. So, so I think if you're a general person and you're looking at credentials, it's going to be really hard for you to say that this guy with a Harvard MD and a professor at so-and-so is not credible. And you may not feel like you actually have the ability to say that. And I think you have to really look and see what is it, what is a person actually saying? What does that, how does that integrate with what you already know, what you've seen with your own eyes, even if you're a lay person, what other people are saying? And then you almost have to have experts on the experts to try and decipher what's being said to say, well, yes, this guy has really great credentials, but what he's saying is not something that is supported by science or data. And, and you almost have to have, you know, it's, you know, there's this, you, you often talk about consensus and sometimes consensus can be bad because it ends up f fostering groupthink and orthodox, unorthodox opinions get filtered out. But I think there is something to it when the peer review process is actually integrating with what someone's saying or what, uh, what that other scientists are, are saying something similar or in the, at least the same lane. And it's, and it's integrating with what you're actually seeing in the world and what you know versus something that's completely unable to be integrated with what's, what other experts are saying and what you're seeing in the world. That makes sense. But I know that in human psychology, the tendency towards conspiracy is profound. And so if people are already politically fired up about a topic for which they might be getting slanted information, and then someone comes on and says something very counter to the scientific consensus, how how can the regular person who isn't really following all the science at the level that you know that experts do how can they pull apart what is conspiracy what is just plain old bad information or false claims where do they even begin it, it's extremely difficult if you don't have at least some baseline knowledge yourself. I mean, obviously, if you think about COVID vaccines as an example, there are certain things that just should be dismissed out of hand, that there are microchips in them or that they make your arm magnetic. The average person knows that that's not necessarily true. 
But when it comes to the more sophisticated arguments that some disinformation purveyors are, are putting forth, I don't think the general public has the ability to be able to do that. And there, I think a lot of it, so if you're saying that, so sometimes people, there's these ludicrous claims that so many people are dying with the vaccine. I think what you have to do is investigate that yourself. Talk to your friends that are nurses or doctors. What's happening in the in, in the intensive care unit in your community hospital? Read other sources that are not just that person. Look your look like your local newspaper. Things that are not going to have that same be, be plugged into whatever conspiracy theory you think might be happening. But it, it's you know I, I think it all comes down to being able to to judge the way that people are what, what they're saying, and and trying to look for any facts that actually support what they say. And some of those facts might not be that accessible because they may be in very sophisticated technical journals, for example. But some of them are going to be available just to your eye. So if someone says, oh, the vaccine doesn't do anything, but then you know in your hospital or you know just from your friends and, and family members who's getting hospitalized, who's not getting hospitalized, you read the little local thing in your, in your newspaper about number of people hospitalized, you understand vaccine uptake. That kind of stuff helps, I think, to try and disentangle entangle it but it's for someone that's kind of gone down that conspiracy mindset i i think they almost become un, unreachable because they're not what they're responding to are not facts and they're not going to be thinking that this is going to dislodge this conspiracy because they're not actually looking to dislodge the conspiracy that maybe the in you know and i'm out of my expertise here talking and that's another sign that you're talking to a credible source but i in in my experience some of those people are using the conspiracy theory or, or, or subscribing to the conspiracy theory for reasons outside of what, you know, some other reason. It's not, it's not something that's going to be overcome by facts because I've had to deal with them on a day in and day out basis for two years. And it's just not, it's almost futile. Fair point. I want to talk about something you mentioned a little bit ago when you said the scientific consensus. So that's a term that we hear thrown around a lot and um, it has a very definite meaning can you talk a little bit about when you as an expert rely on consensus versus when you know that science is still uncertain or unsettled and um, would be willing to entertain debate about a topic? So I think the scientific consensus is, as you say, a very loaded term because it can sometimes, like I said, be used to block out outside opinions or, or unorthodox or heterodox uh, uh, opinions and you don't want that to happen. But what I do when I think about consensus is I think who, who, who are the people that are part of this consensus? What is the general flavor of what they're saying? How much certainty are they giving it? What are their margins of errors or their bounds of error? What, what do I know myself about what's going on with whatever that might be? Uh, so, for example, you could think about where, where I hold heterodox opinions are, for example, on booster shots for healthy people. So I understand what the consensus is saying, but I understand what they're not, I understand what the, what's being left out of the consensus, because oftentimes when there is something that, that might be a consensus, it, it might be an oversimplified version of something that's a much more nuanced and complex discussion that's, that the consensus is just kind of agreeing on general principles that, that are going to be easy to, to, to turn into a one-size-fits-all solution versus something that's more more nuanced. So I look at the consensus kind of with an eye to what are they actually saying here? What are they leaving out? How do they simplify this? And, and then how are they approaching people who have a non-consensus viewpoint? Is it something that is completely dis dismissed out of hand? Are they able to engage with it? 
and, and then lastly, I try to think, you know, is the consensus, does it fit with sound biological principles or sound, whatever the science might be, whatever principles they are? And, and for, for COVID-19, I think, does it fit with sound biological principles? Is there something here that's not, not, not integrating with already pre-established, knowledge that's already established that is non-controversial, that is basically taken as, you know, as the central tenets of a science. All of that plays into how I think about consensus and thinking and thinking about how to, to weigh it in, in trying to understand a topic. So you mentioned booster shots as a, a heterodox opinion that you don't think healthy people need a third shot. Now, I'm not interested in getting into the details of that particular example, but I want to go back to it for a second because it's illustrative of the wider principle that I want to raise in this discussion, which is when there is a scientific debate that in which legitimate experts like yourself disagree on a topic, what, what is your opinion on how the gatekeepers have been handling such issues and should be? Gatekeepers meaning, let's say, just to focus on big tech companies to start. I, I think big tech companies have to understand where can reasonable scientific scientists, physicians disagree, and where is it dangerous misinformation? And I don't think it's I don't think it's hard to see that line. You know, if somebody is telling you to drink bleach or hydrogen peroxide, or to take fish cleaner that has hydroxychloroquine in it, I mean, they're, they're clearly that that's clearly across the line versus someone saying, I think boosters should be more targeted to people above the age of 65 than people with low risk conditions. They're, I mean, that's just on its face. You can see that something sounds like it's going to have really negative consequences and other things are is, is a reasoned debate based on what the scientific evidence shows. And, and I, think, um, I think that the gatekeepers have to do a, a better job about understanding what what's going on in the field and i think that's very hard for many of them because they're not necessarily trained in it or up to date in it because there's certain things that might have been considered you know disinformation you know 6 months ago but are now part of the mainstream debate because something new science has evolved so gatekeepers have to if they're going to to do that that function efficiently and in a and provide a value to their customers i think they need to be in the mix, they need to know where, where the scientific, what, what are the kind of lines that you're going to draw where something is going to be dangerous disinformation, where something else is unsettled science, or where there may be two completely uh, legitimate competing hypotheses that haven't been worked out yet. And, and I think that it shouldn't be some kind of knee-jerk reaction, but something where, where clear lines are drawn and then they're articulated, and there's room for appeal because you know, you can even, I, I think what, what happens now is they're just so nervous about being labeled as purveyors of disinformation that they don't actually adjudicate what's going on. If anything doesn't sound um, like what they're hearing is the status quo, they're going to consider that something across the line, which isn't necessarily the, the case. I mean, you can think about some of the, the, the ideas about lab leak hypotheses, which were often censored. And now, you know, and, and then Dr. Fauci says the same thing. And, uh, and, uh, that that many many people have said, which is not which now ha, is considered, you know, I'm using him as a surrogate for the status quo, but but I think they, they've done a, you know, they've. I think it's admirable that they're trying to do this, but I also think that it's not something that you can just 
you, you can do very simply without actually having some knowledge of what the current debates are in, in a field. So so this is such a tricky issue. When, when, what I hear you're saying is that they should be trying to silence the the mis or disinformation that is clearly dangerous, wrong, um, or misleading, but not silence or do anything about legitimate debate. And the question is, how do they know which is which? And as you mentioned, like the lab leak theory could get you kicked off Facebook last year, and now it's accepted as something worth investigating seriously. Even, uh, you know, when the pandemic started, Facebook wouldn't really let you talk about cloth masks not working, although now that's recognized as um, as real and, and true that cloth masks are very, very ineffective compared to better filtered masks. So these are the kinds of things that have, I think, lost a lot of the public's trust around what how strong the scientific consensus is and how paternalistic the big tech companies are. And and I think some of these factors have led to people like Rogan's being able to be much more influential than they otherwise might have been around scientific topics. It, I mean, would you say that there's a, a trust vacuum in a way at the top of our science? Oh, definitely. I definitely think that there's been a severe breach in in the ability of the general public to have trust in in our public leaders. And I think that's because politics has been wrapped up in this pandemic and we increasingly live in a tribal society where people view facts not 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 in and of themselves, but through some filter, depending upon which tribe they belong to. And it's very difficult to um, to sway people because they don't actually look at reality. They look at does my tribe think this is the correct view of this or or do they think this is the incorrect view? And and that's how, from the very beginning days of this pandemic, that, that's been how this whole pandemic has sort of unfolded. And I think that does, and, and, and that still continues today. And I think that part of the, the Joe Rogan controversy or whatever controversy it might be, all stems from the fact that we live in a very tribal world right now where people don't think about facts as facts. They think about facts as part of you know some political narrative that they that they want to believe or that they're they're part of and that's made it really really difficult for anybody that's trying to actually provide facts or to help people think through this pandemic because people don't want to hear it um if it's not if it's not some kind of political thing so you know that's one of the things i do and all my i explicitly did with media was make sure that i go on all the networks that cater to all of the tribes all the time so that you can sometimes break through that because you're consistent on all all, all three of the major cable networks, for example. But but there there, there is a, because there's so much distrust, people are turning to alternative sources of information, and some of those alternative sources of information themselves are part of a tribe or are catering to that tribe, and, and or are, are unable to actually distinguish between real science and pseudoscience. And, and that's where we are today. So let me push back a little bit just to play devil's advocate, um, just because I think it makes the conversation more interesting and forces it in directions that that other, you know, a lot of other outlets don't really get into. And these are the hard questions. So if we accept that platforms like Facebook or Spotify carry some responsibility to not disseminate false information. And I actually dislike the term misinformation because I think it's weaponized to just put down any information you don't agree with. So let's just call it lies. Okay. Let's just say, should Facebook, Spotify, and other distributors or publishers, and there's a fuzzy line there, 
um, act as censors for what we are allowed to hear and discuss. Um, in other words, should tech companies allow us to hear lies or wrong ideas? So, so tech companies are private organizations. These are private companies. So I don't, I don't call that censorship when they want to um, do, do some sort of um, curating of the content that they provide. That's their right. They own that platform. They can say they can put on whatever they want. And I think it's it's bad if they're going to purvey lies, but that's their right if they want to purvey lies and they and, and people should call them out for it. And if they don't want to, if they want to be very aggressive with making sure that everything that, that's out there is truthful, that's their, their, their right as well because they own Spotify. I don't own Spotify. I don't have a right to Spotify's products or th- th- to dictate Spotify's business practices. So I, I think people use the word censorship and I, and I don't think nobody is preventing that type of those types of lies from being said. It's just that people are, are exercising their their you know, their, their economic power from their dollars and their subscriptions to say, this isn't something I want to support, just like you wouldn't support a business that did that was engaged in some practice that, that you didn't like. Uh, you know, many people boycotted companies that were doing business in China, for example, in, in the early eras. That's the same type of thing that's going on here. And, and I think that, you know, it's clear that there are certain um, outlets that are that are allowing those lies to flourish. And why would you want to why would you want to associate with with platforms like that. I wouldn't want to associate with people who promote liars. I don't think the government should, the government should be involved in it, but why would I want to give my money to some place that, that, that uh, spreads lies that, or, or promotes lies or pays liars to work for them? I mean, that, that, that's, that's how I look at it. Okay, fair, fair point. So um, the boycotts, you know, totally understandable on that basis. So the question is, if platforms then were to, you know, let's say they were highly effective at, let's not use the word censorship if, if you think that's too political, but let's just say silencing um, debate around topics that, you know, like the vaccines, so much of what is said or what was said on Rogan's podcast was false. Let's say they were highly effective at, at getting rid of that kind of content and only publishing completely accurate, well-sourced content as I think responsible publishers should. But um, does that just, let's talk about the side effects of that. Is that effective at the outcome that is intended, which is to only expose people to truthful, f- truthful information, or can it drive audiences to platforms that don't censor like Substack, for example, where a lot of anti-vaxxers are flourishing? And is there anything that should be done about that? Well, I do think it's going to be very difficult to, based on you know new platforms propping up the cater to whatever whatever viewpoint people are are looking for. So you may see them run from one platform to another platform. So it's not going to be something that's easy to. It's not going to stop. Um, but where I think what I think it is what what I think about it is I think about it in my own personal value terms. You know, do I want to be part of a platform that has those types of individuals on it and. I wouldn't be one running to, I think about it more about what am I sanctioning rather than the, the cascading impacts of it. And I think if more people thought about it that way, then you would have them off in some, some other platform that nobody else patronizes because it's considered beyond the pale. And that's how, that's, that's how I'm, I'm looking at it. But I think it's going to be very difficult in general to stop, this, to stop the lies about scientific matters from, from ever seeing, you know, from, from being completely gone because 
people spread lies all the time. People, when, when Edward Jenner invented the first vaccine, the smallpox vaccine, people, uh, there were, the anti-vaccine movement spread lies about it. Uh, the same thing happened when, when Jonas Salk uh, released the polio vaccine. There were people like uh, people on the radio talking about body bags going to be needed for all the people. That, that, that type of misinformation is going to be hard to completely, um, to completely eradicate. But what you can do is, is, is marginalize it in a way that it's dismissed out of hand, that it's considered the equivalent of the, you know, the flat earth theory or people who say that, that uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin did not land on the moon. You have to really call it out for exactly how ridiculous it is and how it's not something that has any rational basis in, in belief. And, and I think that this is part of that. It's really just showing that, that, that this type of, this is just nonsense. It's basically arbitrary and it's cognitively meaningless and should be dismissed. And that's, and that's what I think, that, that should be the stance towards it all. So that may be the case for clear lies, but let me pull back a minute and now put it in the context of misleading and nuanced debates. So, you know, claiming, for example, let's just talk about for a second, um, the lab leak theory, that it's plausible that a year ago, you know, you or any other expert might have said, well, this is this is completely, you know, out of hand and we should squash it and this is irrelevant and all the things you just said. But now we know that more evidence or, you know, more thinking has evolved on that and that is something that's legitimately worth discussing. So that's really the the problem that I see in taking the stance that all this misinformation should just be quashed, you know, end of story, because what qualifies as misinformation at the time of the problem? It, it's not there's not an easy answer to that because because the context of knowledge is going to change and what might not be something there's evidence for at one point there may be evidence for in the other but I think what you can do is uh, I, I think if you're a a content a platform a person on the platform do work working on this type of problem I think what it has to do, deal with is having a wide range of subject matter experts to consult with um, ones that are going to tell you and it's not just one, it's a couple, and some maybe that are known for more, more heterodox positions that help you understand where, that, where to draw those lines. And it's not going to be easy, and people are going to get things wrong because, uh, this, isn't, uh, because this is an evolving, an evolving area where, where, where the, the data is going to change and where, where people's opinions are going to change. But I, I think you know, it, it's not so much – I don't think the problem is things that are kind of within the lines. It's the – it's the the complete conspiracy theories about Pfizer or Dr. Fauci or whoever it may be that have no basis in fact. That's what I think that that, that that's legit. Where 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 you're outside the legitimate lines. I think if you're going to say, oh, I heard my my friend got vaccinated and they got myocarditis, that's in the lines to talk about. Or or you know we're hearing about menstrual period changes and people who got vaccinated. I think that's a legitimate question to to ask and and to think through to see whether there's support for that statement or not. And you can also tell the way that these things are being posed. Is it somebody that's actually struggling with the the subject, the topic, trying to understand it, or is it someone that's out there just spreading memes that are lies about you know someone's stock portfolio or whatever it might be? I, I think that there, there's, I mean, I think you can just tell by looking at the content that this person is really trying to understand the answer to does this vaccine affect fertility, versus someone who's just saying. Just trying to get people not to get the vaccine and not doesn't care what the answer is. They've just heard it somewhere and they're just going to spread it. And I think, I mean, that's just how I would approach it when I take Q and A from the crowd. I can tell when someone has a legitimate question, even if I might disagree with the premise. 
versus someone who is completely there to grandstand and spread lies. And, and I think that's – I almost think that the platforms have to be more like that, just trying to get some gauge of is this a, a legitimate question that someone's asking, even if it's – even if it might sound conspiratorial versus something that, that, that is just being put there for political, uh, for, for political points or to create – to, to to create doubt in a way that's you know not really useful and, and I don't know how to draw that line I haven't thought so much about it other than the fact that I'm just stuck in it for the last two years of trying to deal with it so I you know those are all reasonable statements to make but then when you say now it's up to these tech companies to figure out that uh, really tricky line and they have to appoint people to be on that um, you know having that power to moderate, those debates or to pull things down or to kick people off that are crossing these kind of uh, non-transparent lines that they've created. I think the public has questions around like, who are those people who are selected as the, the powerful gatekeepers of our debates? Do they have any qualifications like you? Do they consult experts that are legitimate or are they just prey to, you know, political agendas or the government's pressuring them to take down anything that's potentially controversial and then and then debate gets silenced. I mean, I think you can see how this this could become or already is an extremely um, problematic situation for society as a whole. And it's not just about COVID. It's about what are we allowed to talk about in general? I mean, even even after the pandemic ends and now we've encouraged all these tech companies and these gatekeepers to be extremely heavy handed about um, what we can and can't say or discuss or ask or um, or post, and you know what's going to be the next thing that society gets more and more restrictive. We can't we can't talk about. Um, are you concerned about any of this, like these precedents? One th- one distinction I would like to make. It's not that you can't talk about it. You can invite people to your house and talk what, about whatever you want. Nobody's stopping them from doing that. These are private companies and private platforms that you subscribe to, that you have terms of and services that you agree to. It's not as if Facebook is a public utility. It's not that it's a like a common carrier that you that that you that it's not the same thing as it's not the same thing you as as saying that you you know I push back on that the idea that you can't talk about it you go go to invite all those people over to your house have your convention in your house it, it, that's that's your nobody's stopping people from spreading lies in those situations these are private companies that are worried about how their platforms are being used to used and and they own those the, the shareholders of Facebook that's it's their property you don't have a right to that. Um, and, and I think that's – I think people need to understand that that difference. And I also think that Facebook and other content provide uh, – and, and these platforms need to think about how do they want – what's their business model? How do they want to – how do they – what lines do they want to draw? And they want to clearly – they need to clearly articulate them so that people know what's what, what, what the, what's being said and what's not what, – what can be said and what, what's something that's outside of their terms of service. But – but but I think you know we we have to be open to heterodox views. We have to think about legitimate debate because that actually gets us further towards the quest to knowledge. But at the same time, I think we have to th- that these companies need to think about how they want to how they want to structure that. And I think about like an example of like a medical journal. The New England Journal of Medicine has an editorial board. They have a peer review panel. Those are – not everything gets published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It has to cross a bar. It has to be legitimate. It has to be based on on, on sound sound uh, uh, sound science. And and maybe that's that, that's what they that, – that's 
something that some of those places want, want to turn into is more of a publisher. But I know that, that there's other legal issues which I'm not qualified to speak on, whether they're a publisher or whether they're just a forum based on – but based on the FCC and all these laws. But but I don't think there's an easy an easy answer to it. But I, I think it's important to, to just draw these distinctions that these are private platforms that are owned by people that – can set their own rules. So moving beyond the big the big tech gatekeepers for a second, I also want to bring up the problem of self-silencing within the scientific community when debate arises or has the opportunity to arise, but then people are afraid to weigh in or discuss it if they have a heterodox view. Have you noticed this problem um, getting worse throughout COVID? I do think that because of all the politics tied into this and COVID being managed more as a political problem than a, a public health problem, that if somebody has uh, a view, even if it's well supported, they may not want to voice it because of how it might play with the political class. And I, I know that it just in my, that doesn't apply to me because I tend to be on nobody's team and will say whatever I think. However, there are many of my colleagues that will privately express frustration with certain policies or certain ideas but be afraid to really say it. And I think some of this was um, happening with the way that the school closures were handled, for example, where there wasn't much science to support what was going on. And, and there was a lot, of, um, a lot of political considerations about, for example, placating teachers unions. That was a, a political calculation made by certain politicians and political parties that other people kind of went along with, even though they knew there wasn't a scientific basis to do so. So, so there, there's that happening. Um, and obviously people – and I think this is distinct also that you don't want to often – if you disagree with a big eminence in the field, you better make sure you know what you're talking about. So there's also that as well where people aren't completely sure and they may not want to actually say something until they're much more confident about it or that other people have actually verified what they're saying. But I, I do think that there there is a lot of people holding their tongues when there's things that, that are going on and maybe they're looking more long-term and not – or trying to build – uh, trying to build um, at, at least some momentum behind what they're saying. But in general, I think in COVID-19, everything, if I use that as the example, everything that's been heterodox or been something that people were silencing themselves about for some period of time has made it out eventually. And, and I think that's, I think, a testament to science that even statements that are not necessarily, that, that were not accepted are starting to get more, at least adherence, or at least a voice, or part of a legitimate debate. So is it possible to normalize debate around such topics again, when there's so much reputational risk? I think there is, and I think it has to come from the scientists themselves. You know, people need to start saying, well, no, that's not a legitimate, that's not an illegitimate question. Let's go through what, what's going on here. And I think we have to be better at doing that ourselves to, to say that this is a legitimate question to ask, or that there is room for disagreement here, so that a lot of people are taking their cues from from scientists and from physicians about what's within the within the realm of re- reasonable disagreement, what isn't. And I think if we articulate that better, even when we're when we're saying when when we're writing when we're writing something or when we're talking to the public, we, I think being able to address that in a non confrontational way, I think helps set a tone for the general public and for the media and for these tech companies to understand that this is 
this is how scientists talk and this is how science is done, that people can be, uh, can be completely opposed on something and do it in a, in a legitimate way. But what has to stop are the death threats that even I get on a weekly basis um, and, and, and the harassment of scientists. That's a totally different thing. And, and that's also part of this mix, that we're in a situation that's really unprecedented that way. But I think that scientists themselves and physicians need to just really be able to engage with these, these ideas and, and debunk them or say say where there's legitimacy, where there's illegitimacy, and just be be good about it, and 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 encourage that that encourage an environment where heterodox ideas get some get some airing because that might actually help. I mean, mRNA vaccines were a heterodox idea at one time. Absolutely, yeah, really well said. And and about the death threats, that's just absolutely horrific and terrifying. And I'm sorry that you and and so many scientists have to deal with that um, for. <laughs> Just for the very nature of doing your job today, it's it's really uh, a sad statement on our society today, and and hopefully something that will rapidly improve. I don't I don't know how or when. Um, I just want to make a final comment. And when we're on the subject of gatekeepers, so we talked about the the tech companies, we talked about the scientific establishment. I think it's worth just a, a mention of the official government scientists acting as. Um, really policymakers around COVID issues like the, the CDC director and the FDA. Um, and we it's well known that they have made mistakes, that they've been behind the science. Um, for example, they still talk about keeping six feet of distance indoors, even though it's an airborne virus, which they were very, very slow to acknowledge in the first place. Um, what happens when misinformation or misleading information comes from the top? Well, I think it's important to know that you know, people are le- they're not trying to harm people. They're not. They're trying. Their, they're trying their best, or at least going on the scientific data that's out there, and it may get overcome by events. The context of knowledge changes, and, and I think that when it comes to control of communicable diseases, the government has a real role, and I think that's about being kind of sober subject matter experts that lay the data out. And much of what's happened with the policy implementation has been from not the public health authorities it's 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 or it's it ha, it's kind of fallen to the public health authorities because there's been abdication by political leadership who failed to actually do any kind of leadership so then you have this all being driven from from uh public health experts who have subject matter expertise but it's up to the political leaders to be able to weigh the pluses and minuses all of the the cascading negative impacts the long-term impacts all of that is something that politicians and our elected leaders have to be able to struggle with and not put scientists and physicians in the position of being the political leader and that's something that's not been the case during this pandemic very different than other infectious disease emergencies and i think we have to get to a point where we have leaders that actually understand the role that they need to play in a public health emergency and keep people in their lanes and actually make the tough calls instead of abdicating them and then being able to blame somebody else if something bad goes on because the scientists would do this, for example. The scientists want to do this is what Do- how Donald Trump would, would put it. And, and I think the same thing is happening now somewhat in the, in the Biden administration saying my doctor team says this. They, they need to actually exert leadership and do the job that they were elected to do and keep the public health experts and the scientists, the government officials that are charged with this um, in, in, in the proper role of being advisors and subject matter experts rather than prom- promulgating policy for the entire country. Absolutely. So I just want to wrap up um, with a note to just 
regular people, not gatekeepers, not anyone who's tasked with these really challenging issues um, and, and how to disseminate them, how to speak about them, but just people who are looking for credible, objective, scientifically sound advice and guidance um, when we've already discussed the fact that multiple sources can be flawed. Um, you earlier referenced people looking at talking to different experts, talking to their doctors, see, you know, seeing what's happening in reality, talking to friends and family. Um, is there any any particular source that you trust or like or or sources that you turn to when, you know, if you're not reading medical journals, but just as a regular person looking for for like the real truth. And clearly we're not talking about Joe Rogan. From a journalistic standpoint, I, I like Stat News, which is a uh, which is founded by the Boston Globe, which is a, a science a science news site that can be technical sometimes, but it's also very accessible. And I think in general, what you see there is going to be um, a pretty good coverage of what debates are going on and uh, not suppression of of, uh, of views that are not mainstream. As well as you know, you're going to see a lot of things vetted. So I, I use Stat News almost uh, religiously as a, as a source for for good background on things that I'm, I'm looking, um, looking up. I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I do think that the mainstream media, if you get an eye for reading, reading it, I think you can pull out what's, what, uh, what the real, uh, the truth is there. There may be some slants and biases there in throughout the pandemic. I can tell right away just by looking at the byline where the slant is going to be. But, but I think that, that, you know, I think that the scientific press in general, is much better than the general press. So I would often look for science writers and scientific websites versus um, anything else that you might be out there to see. So I, I tend to gravitate towards science writers. Are there anyone in particular that our audience should have on their radar to follow or read? Well, so there's Marin McKenna at Wired is very good. Helen Branswell at Stat um, is is very good. Um, those are the two. Those are two kind of star uh, science public health reporters that I would mention. And lastly, I've just been thinking a lot about this question of nuanced debate and the lack of real platforms for it. Because as you've talked about, there's so much politicization among the media and in sources of information that you either go to one or the other and you know which viewpoint you're going to get filtered. Should there be more encouragement of just head-to-head debate among experts that's transparent and you know, easily accessible to the public to, to watch these questions play out? I, I definitely think that would be that would be beneficial. So, for example, you know, go back to boosters. You know, you have Dr. Fauci has one position and then Dr. Paul Offit from Children's Philadelphia has another position. It would be great to see them go at this and actually um, address each other's objections to each other's positions. It might not be that interesting for the general public because it might get very technical, but I think that kind of thing would be really, really, I mean, I would pay money to watch that type of thing. Um, but yeah, I think that debates on, on either side would be good, but they have to be at a level where it's a debate and not kind of like a dog and pony show because sometimes the debates are not that, that way. I think they have to be people who have, that, that, are, that are willing to actually debate and oftentimes people don't want to necessarily expose their ideas to criticism, and there often are debates you'll sometimes see in medical journals where those there'll be pro and con articles all the time, but that's probably something hidden from the general public. But yes, I think that that kind of debate would be would be useful for the general public just to see how science is done. Absolutely, and even potentially increase the, the trust of the scientific research at the end of the day, which is what I think you know so many experts, including yourself and and me, also are concerned about if people don't don't trust 
you know, what the good and best science is saying, then they'll turn down vaccines and they'll turn down, you know, appropriate treatments. And then we're all worse off. So maybe if they could see these kinds of questions playing out and, and judge the arguments for themselves and the roots of them and the, the, the research behind it, if, they, if it's all discussed in a way that people could could watch and try to try to make their own decisions, I think that could only benefit people. Yeah, I think it, it can only get better if we have kind of an open dialogue and, and the public is engaged in science in the way that they probably haven't been for a long time. Absolutely. Well, let's hope that a better path forward lies ahead. Um, it's tar- challenging dark times for a lot of us today, but thank you for the work that you do, for getting out there, as you mentioned, just speaking to so many different audiences all the time you're on the news and you're doing your job and you're doing rounds at the hospital and you're doing your research. So we just need to clone like about, you know, a million of you and then maybe we'd all be (laughs) in a much better position. Well, thank you for having me. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Adalja. And thanks to everyone for listening. I hope that we have raised some thought-provoking questions in your mind. And if you like the show, follow Making Sense of Science to hear our new episodes coming soon. Thanks so much. (laughs) 